Wow. Well, thank you for having me. That uh, song is such a perfect segue uh, into the passage of Scripture that I have for us, and so very much worth the wait and appreciate the talent. You're, the worship team sounds so good, um, and I, not to diminish from your talent, but one of the reasons why I think it sounds so good is because I can hear all of the rest of you singing, and uh, it is it is wonderful to hear that, uh, that, that sound of the many voices uh, raising their hearts up to the Lord. And uh, I just appreciate you, uh, appreciate you and thank you for, for that experience uh, and being able to join in it with you. Um, I see a lot of new faces uh, since I've been here last. I used to haunt this place just a little bit when I was in high school. And uh, there's some of you I don't recognize, some of you I do, and uh, you've, you've grown up, and uh, that's wonderful to see. Uh, some of you have also grown uh, wiser, and uh, <laughs> it's good to see all of you, and I do appreciate the impact uh, that you have had on my life, especially uh, my family uh, who's, who's come here, my grandparents, um, you guys have made such an impact in my life, and it's been a long labor of love. I know, I know. I gave you guys a run for your money, but uh, I, I, I suppose I turned out well. If I did turn out well, it's, it's because of you. If I didn't, it's your fault. Um, but uh, that is, whether you have a, a family heritage that knows the Lord or not, uh, I just want to remind you as a church body, as a church family, as uh, Pastor mentioned just a little bit ago, uh, you are in a great uh, kind of, a kind of labor, if you will, and you are giving birth to a generation of disciples and that is a long and hard and enduring process. Uh, steward that responsibility well. Uh, you never know uh, where those young folks are going to turn, uh, turn up and how they're going to turn out. Uh, but uh, you'll, the benefits and the rewards will be something that you get to see uh, throughout your lifetimes. And that's certainly uh, a, a happy thought for me at this moment as I look out at all your faces. Uh, as I said, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at this passage of Scripture here in Mark chapter 5. You're welcome to turn with me in your Bibles, and uh, I will read it for us. Mark chapter 5, verses 22 to 34. This is not the entire story, and so if you want to kind of get the ending of it, you're going to have to read it yourself, but I'm going to pause at verse 34. That should do it for our reflection today. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many physicians and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd 
and touched his cloak because she had thought, if I, can, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I'd like to tell you a, a story about some of my, my younger days. I was not yet old enough to have a job. Uh, nevertheless, I was aware that I had time on my hands, especially over the summertime. And so for a couple of summers, I decided that I was going to volunteer my time at uh, a, a hospital in Sunbury uh, where my mom worked. So I had an easy way to get there. Uh, and it wasn't my only reason for choosing to volunteer my time at a hospital. It was, in many ways, a shrewd decision for a young lad such as myself, because volunteering at a hospital was still a field that was very much saturated by teenage girls. Um, and that was a fact that was not lost on me. And so uh, most, if not all, of my gender way back uh, a long time ago had renounced their privilege uh, to take advantage of this situation. And they did it long before their 13th year. But I had reluctantly held on to the possibility that this may be something I was interested in. Uh, and, but the reason that, mo that this, uh, this opportunity phased out most of my kind, if you will, uh, most if not all of my gender uh, had, had renounced this privilege primarily because the occupation to which I aspired still went by that unflattering name, Candy Striper. How many of you have heard of the name Candy Striper before? Still many of you in the crowd, yeah. In days hitherto past, candy stripers, for those of you who don't know, got their name from the uniform that they had to wear, uh, an outfit that was bedecked with red and white stripes that gave every bit the impression of a human candy cane. And so, long before I was around to have my say in making this decision, boys my age had decided that is just not something that we do. We do not go around dressed as human candy canes. We had to draw the line somewhere, and we decided we were going to draw it there. And so, we don't dress like human candy canes, no matter how sore the temptation may be. You know, no matter what kind of spoils lay on the other side, we refuse to do it. And that was that. But by the time that I was old enough to volunteer, I had some information that the rest of my guild did not have. 
the powers that be had retired the uniform for a much more masculine blue, a solid blue, and you could wear khaki slacks. And so while they still called us candy stripers, I could live with that indignity because, well, I could smell opportunity when I, when I saw it. And so a profession dominated by teenage girls needed a boy like me to break that glass ceiling and uh, especially to liberate and give the opportunity for all of the other boys my age uh, to be candy stripers just like me and preferably before they found out. I remember uh, when I was volunteering, I was doing my rounds one day and uh, I had the task of offering water to each of the inpatients on the floors that held them. I think it was, I even remember the floors. I think it was like three and four. Uh, and coming to one of the rooms that I was assigned to, there was an older lady. She was sitting there on her bed. And if I recall right, the TV was off. Her room was relatively quiet. The sun was shining in. So I asked, you know, would, would she like a glass of water? Yes, that would be nice. So I poured her a cup and I placed it in her hand. How are you feeling today? She wasn't feeling too good. Uh, she'd been there for a while already. And she wanted to go home. But the doctors say that she has double pneumonia. And I could tell that she wanted to talk. So I made myself comfortable. I leaned back or I found a chair. I don't remember which. And we just talked. We talked. I don't remember what it is that we talked about. We just kept talking. While the ice in my scoop container melted in the hallway. And by the time I said goodbye, I had walked out of her room, and I, I kind of sheepishly rushed to my cart to continue my round, hoping to finish before anybody had noticed where I had been all this time. But someone had noticed. I remember a, a nurse, just before I kind of got out of that section of the hospital, a, a nurse from the desk, I had looked at her, she looked at me, and she got up and, uh, as if to come toward me, and I knew that she had something to say to me. And she came over and said, I just wanted to say, thank you for spending time with that woman. She told me in a way that said, Talking to her meant more than I realized. That the nurse knew something about this woman that I didn't know. And I mumbled, you're welcome. Kind of exactly like a teenage boy does who doesn't know how to take a compliment. And that was it. I was on my way. I think of that story because in many ways, it's about a kid who has no clue what loneliness really is. If, I imagine that if I was the person that I was today, I, I probably I, I would have known what loneliness is. 
I would have been very familiar with it. I would have recognized all the signs. I would have seen her loneliness immediately, and I would have been precisely for that reason, I probably would have done something to try and fix it. I would have tried to cheer her up somehow, and, and, by, and by trying to come to her rescue and solve her loneliness, I would have failed to give her the one thing that she really wanted and really needed in that moment. Something that my younger self gave her, perhaps because I didn't know how to give her anything else. A connection. A moment with someone who will just sit down with you and listen to your problems and not treat you like a puzzle to be fixed, but simply as a person to be sat with. I think it's no accident in this story. It is no accident that Mark tells us about this woman's suffering under the care of doctors for 12 long years. That is an important detail here. For 12 years, she was a project for other people to work on, a puzzle, a conundrum. She was a passive object being told to take her medicine and see what happens. And medicine, don't get me wrong, medicine can be a wonderful thing. I am glad for medicine. Our bodies need care and medicine can many times give us that. But medicine can also be dehumanizing. We can concentrate sometimes so much on our physical bodies that we forget that we are more than just our health. We are more than bodies. We are social beings with emotions and thoughts and relationships. And I imagine that after a while, even this woman came to see herself as just a project. She would have seen herself as nothing more than a medical fiasco, something that needed fixed and wasn't working right. Her, her hope for bodily health and healing, her, her hope for bodily healing, little by little, transformed into the belief that if I could just get better, everything would be okay. If I could just be whole again, uh, in, if, if my body could just stop malfunctioning, then I would be whole again. And I could get back to being who I really am. But the Greek word, I think it's interesting the word that, Paul, or that Mark uses here in this story. The, the Greek word that Mark uses to describe her bleeding is a word that often is translated, even in many Bibles, uh, but not all of them, as affliction. Now think about that a minute. Not disease, affliction. It's a word that suggests that this woman's suffering goes much deeper than bodily pain. Mark seems to be warning us that if all we see here is a hemorrhaging woman, 
then we need to look a little bit closer. We need to look harder. It is so easy to focus on the presenting problem, like the physical anguish of this nameless woman, that we forget how it leaves her an emotionally and socially broken person. This woman is not just bleeding. She's lonely. She's without a friend, abandoned to her own thoughts as they drift further and further away from understanding who she really is. Without anyone to call her back to reality, to remind her of who she really is. In her culture, she's considered unclean which means that anyone who cares about ceremonial purity has to keep their distance. But this woman hears some news one day. She hears that Jesus is coming near. And with no one to talk her out of it, with no one to say maybe that's a bad idea, she hatches a desperate plan. One that, if exposed, could be catastrophic to her survival, by the the way. And so in disguise, cautiously ducking, pushing and being pushed, her nerve brings her in arm's reach of Jesus. And she thrusts out her hand, and she feels his garment, briefly but definitely, before the crowd swells in again around her. And as quick as that, 12 years of bleeding are over. They're over. Everything she'd sought, her one consuming thought for 12 long years ends without a word passing between her and the Lord. And I suspect if it, had, if, it had, if it hadn't been for Jesus, if it hadn't been for Jesus in this moment, this woman would have eagerly melted away back into the mass of humanity and gone her way with her prize of bodily healing. But it's in that moment when we get these precious and tender words, who touched me? Some of the most profound things that Jesus says are so short and seem so off the cuff. But everything I say to you today is really just a reflection on those words. Who touched me? I don't think Jesus intends these words as idle curiosity. I don't think that Jesus asks them uh, whimsically or nonchalantly. True, Jesus seems surprised that power has gone out from him. And that's a fascinating puzzle in itself, how Jesus didn't know that he had just done a miracle until that moment. But I am convinced that something else prompts him to ask this question, who touched me? I think Jesus genuinely wants to meet the person 
for whom God's grace has done so much. He wants to hear her story. He aches to gaze into her eyes as the love of God dawns like the sunrise on her heart. So many kneel before Jesus interested in a transaction. He's he's healed so many that way. They look at him and they see a means to an end, a cog, a cold instrument. And Jesus loves them. But they feel so far away, unavailable, distracted, consumed in their concerns. What if, what if Jesus asks who touched me? What if he asks that question because Jesus also longs for a connection? I think that's what this story is. It's a story about two lonely people connecting with each other. And going away more full than they were before. And it happened because Jesus understood her loneliness and her social isolation. Jesus knows what that is like. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus recognizes that the earth she inhabits could sometimes be this way, often was this way. And for that reason, he knew that physical healing was not the only thing that this woman needed. Jesus realized how this woman needed human connection And he seemed to know it long after she had forgotten. And so in a display of incredible mercy, Jesus pauses in the road, turns around, and asks, who touched me? Jesus understood how important it was to stop And smile warmly as this woman shared. And listen to her tale for however long it would take for her to tell it. In her trembling and cracking voice. Jesus knew because he suffered from the same loneliness that she did. When everyone else was, uh, when everyone else just followed him for the bread. And to see him perform wonders and signs when it was clear to him that his disciples would desert him and that he would walk up the hill of Calvary abandoned, betrayed, and all by himself. Loneliness would be there to pierce his heart. It was that sense of loneliness, I suspect which enabled Christ to grasp the importance of stopping and asking, who touched me? But there's something else. There's at least one other thing that makes this story remarkable. We actually know 
that Jesus has a very compelling reason to shrug off this woman's need for connection. And if it were any one of us, we might have justified to ourselves that we needed to submit to the urgency of the moment. Submit to the, to the tyranny of the urgent uh, and hurry off to the next project. While Jesus dilly-dallies in the streets here, there's also a father who stammers impatiently while his daughter lay dying in a bed a long way off. The urgency of this moment should tell us a lot about how important it is to Jesus to meet this woman who touched him. Jesus insists on being here with this huddled and lonely figure. She is the one that is nearest to him. Jesus doesn't go chasing after future glory and the next best thing. He stays with her. He loses track of time. While the world hurtles toward a flurry of activity, this woman is not too insignificant to have Jesus' undivided attention. But if I were the father in this story, who touched me would seem like an excruciatingly unnecessary question. Come on, Jesus. We have no time here for small talk. My daughter is barely alive. It was an emergency when I got here. If I was this father, I don't think I would be in the mood to see Jesus' compassion for this lonely woman. What would you feel? Aggravation? Rage? Panic? At the very least, I imagine I'd have thought that Jesus didn't care as much about me. As Jesus fusses over this timid figure, I would have felt forgotten, ignored, neglected. I would have felt lonely, desperately lonely in my terror of losing my daughter. Listen to me, church. Every disciple, every true disciple of Jesus, bent on following him, runs the risk of creating these feelings in the people that they love most. That is a hard truth. We all admire Peter, for instance, for leaving the boats and following Jesus. But how do you think that Peter's wife felt when it was time to put the kids to bed? We praise Mary for sitting at Jesus' feet as he taught. But we know it gnawed on Martha who is getting no help with the dishes. In Acts, the disciples choose the ministry of the word over waiting on tables, a decision that became extremely tense until seven deacons were appointed. 
following Jesus to the utmost. We can get that exactly right. And it will not deliver us from being sometimes misunderstood or even accused. We are not spared the heartache of causing hurt feelings and disappointment. Satan loves to use this last vanity, the disapproval of others, to override complete surrender to God. He will tempt you with that. Oswald Chambers keenly observes that the hardest thing about being a disciple isn't knowing that it will inconvenience you. It's knowing that it will inconvenience the people you love. And knowing that is small consolation for this father who gets the breathless news that his little girl died because Jesus asked, who touched me? I don't have any easy answers for you about how to be the father in this story. While Jesus stands there in rapt attention with this woman, what's so astonishing is that he makes no attempt to rescue Jairus from his impatience, from his feelings of neglect, and maybe, maybe even loneliness. Jesus seems to accept the possibility that Jairus will think this woman is more important than his daughter. And the only thing that I can say to that is that Jairus would be wrong. This woman is not more important. She's only as important. She is worth Jesus' time. Every bit as much as Jairus' daughter. And I'm not saying that Jesus' actions here give us permission to neglect our families or sacrifice them on the altar of our spiritual life. I'm simply saying that God calls each of us truly to be where we are at. Our friends, our neighbors... They are people who need to be met in their loneliness. We can't just pray for them and move on. We have to go to them. We have to make time for them. We can't measure our lives by the projects that we get done or the relationships we need to manage. We need to meet people in their loneliness, and that can be hard. It can be hard for us, and it can be hard for the people that we love. But our Savior does not seem to take relational shortcuts. It can be hard for us to trust that investing time in people who feel hopeless that that's actually worth it. When there are projects to finish, chores to be done, and all kinds of worthy causes begging for our attention. 
So I, I don't know. I don't know how this sermon grabs you. If you find yourself in the shoes of this woman today, I want you to know that Jesus doesn't think you are a project. He doesn't think of you that way. His time and his power are not so important that he can't be with you. Just be with you. If you find yourself in the shoes of Jesus, don't neglect your responsibilities, but be willing to risk misunderstanding. Don't think that the world rests so entirely on your shoulders that you can't stop to make a genuine connection and be a saving presence for someone in the moment. And if you're Jarius, trust that God has not forgotten you. That His grace is sufficient to meet all of your needs. Even when they feel late in coming. But do it soon. So that you can be glad. So that you can be genuinely glad for the trembling woman before Jesus as she tells the story of her salvation. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, it's such a small question. And yet this question in its place just says so much about who you are. Lord, you are a Savior who knows exactly what we need, exactly how to lead us into further discipleship with you, how to mend our emotions and get over our concerns and our hiccups. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts in whatever way we need it to today. But I especially pray for those who are hesitant to commit everything to the Lord, to fully surrender to Him because of what others might think, because of how it may make their responsibilities more difficult. Give them the assurance that your grace is sufficient. I pray all these things in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus, and I thank you. Amen. Well, it's been very much a privilege. I've been told that I can uh, benedict us, and so I will do that now. Go in peace, church, to love and to serve the Lord. Thank you.